Jeremiah 10, 1. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it, it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree. And I want to emphasize these words. They cannot speak. They must be carried. Now, there is a stark contrast in this verse between the, the Lord, Jehovah, and the idols of the pagan nations. Jehovah is a God who, who can speak and has spoken. Thus saith the Lord. Jeremiah said, but an idol made by human hands and human imagination has no voice. It cannot speak. Turn to Psalm 115, verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Again, idols have mouths, but they do not speak. Warren Van Hetlu, all the way back in 1958, in writing an article on the various evidences of verbal inspiration in the Central Biblical Quarterly, said this, The Old Testament alone has over 2,600 references to the fact that its writers were aware of the divine origin of their message. The phrase, the word of the Lord, is found about 500 times in the Bible. The word of the Lord came 23 times. God spoke or the Lord spoke over 150 times. Thus saith the Lord, or the Lord saith, and saith the Lord of hosts another 816 times. So the message this morning is the first in a series on discerning the will of God. And I titled this first message, The God Who Has Spoken. The God Who Has Spoken. Part of systematic theology is called bibliology, which is the doctrine of the study of the Bible, and part of that consists in what the Bible has to say about itself. We are a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching church because we believe that God has revealed himself to mankind, and that revelation is found only in the Holy Scriptures from the book of Genesis through the book of Revelation. And Revelation is the, the direct communication from God of truth to which man could not attain on his own. Had God not chosen to reveal himself to us, we would be completely ignorant of God. Now, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament 
reveals his handiwork. It's what we call natural revelation. But we also have God's special revelation in the scripture. J.I. Packer said, Revelation is not concerned with knowledge we once had, but have forgotten for the time being. Nor does it refer to the kind of knowledge that we might attain by diligent research. It is knowledge that comes to us from outside ourselves and beyond our own ability to discover. And there is a difference between the revelation and the inspiration of the scriptures. Revelation, as the word suggests, reveals truth. It's an unveiling of truth, while inspiration superintends the process of communication of that truth through men whom God has chosen. And there are a couple of scriptures, you're probably well familiar with them, that highlight this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says, No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. And that word interpretation means literally unloosing. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved, which literally means carried along. God sees their personalities. God sees their mind. And the, the end product of what they had written was the word of God through the Holy Spirit. They were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. The one verse you're probably most familiar with about this is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, graphe is the word, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, literally means breathed out, breathed out, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now that word complete there, artios, has reference to a special aptitude or adequacy for specific purposes. In other words, it means qualified to perform a function. The word equipped, super, or it means completely furnished. It's a superlative, exactly right. So what, what Paul is doing in choosing these two closely related Greek words, artios, adequate, and extartizo, equipped, what he's telling us is that the, the scriptures doubly equip, doubly equip the man or the woman of God for God's work, for what he wants them to do. We lack nothing in our spiritual life to live and to serve God effectively. The problem isn't that we haven't been given enough to help us to live right. The problem is with our application in doing. And this is emphasized in 1 Peter 2 too. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us, and what does it say? All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue. Now, if the word of God 
in Scripture contains all that we need to do, all that God wants us to do, so that we can live successfully the life that he wants us to live, we need not look for extra revelation for spiritual guidance, for strength, for encouragement, for admonition. Now, I want to clarify that. God uses people to encourage you, right? They come alongside you. They can share Bible verses with you. They could pray with you. They could tell you how the Lord has helped them maybe in in some of the difficulties that you are going through. But that's not revelation. We don't need any extra revelation or spiritual guidance. We have what we have or what, what, what all that we need right here in the scriptures. In other words, the word, and here's the, here's the key thought, the word of God alone is sufficient. Reformers called that sola scriptura. The scriptures alone. Now, I wanted to emphasize this at the beginning of the study because many Christians do, in fact, look for something more than what we have in the Bible. They look for, quote, God's leading, they look for signs. Some will put the fleece out, and I'll explain the context of that, not today. They look for open doors. They look to hear the still, small voice of God. They may even look to dreams or visions, promptings, inner feelings, spiritual nudges. They may have a strong impression about a Bible verse that they call a rima. And they're convinced it's God speaking directly to them in an unusual way. Or they can look at some unusual circumstances occurring in their life, pointing the way that they should go. Or maybe it's an inner peace. I have heard all of these things during my Christian life. My first pastor once told me, if you look for an experience, Satan is sure to give you one. But he constantly referred to his own spiritual experiences. Now, if you utilize any of those things or say any of those things, find yourself saying any of those things I just mentioned, you are not alone, all right? They constitute the majority view among Christians, among Pentecostals, which we would expect. Many in the New Apostolic Reformation, which is a heretical movement, I mean, you'll find this over and over and over again. It's popular in charismatics. It's popular in Bible churches. It's popular in fundamental Baptist churches and independent Baptist churches. And now even among Reformed believers. So I am in the minority in preaching this message and against these things. But you know what? That is okay. That is okay. The only thing that matters is what God's word teaches about discerning his will and obtaining guidance from the Lord in making decisions. That is the only thing that matters. My experiences or lack of them 
and your experience do not matter. We can't argue experience versus experience. So bear with me patiently, okay, and lovingly, even if you disagree. Now, I deliberately titled this series, Discerning the Will of God, Not Finding the Will of God, because God's will is not lost. So you do not have to try to find it in order to live how he desires to you, for you to live. Furthermore, finding the will of God is what pagans did. Bruce Walkie, I knew his brother quite well. Bruce Walkie is, the, he's well, probably 88 now, foremost Old Testament Hebrew scholar in the world, probably. In, in Finding the Will of God, a pagan ocean, a book that he wrote, he writes this. In the phrase to find God's will, the verb to find means to learn, obtain, or attain to God's mind. But the term implies that God's mind is something hidden that needs to be discovered. The term for trying to find a divine being's hidden knowledge is divination. Divination was common in pagan religions and was the obsession of pagan kings. Now you can find that in the Bible. And Pastor Greg Gilmert, commenting on that book, says, Walkie discusses a whole list of what might be called divination. Casting lots, looking for signs, opening the Bible and pointing to a Bible verse, astrology, communicating with spirits, leaving your mind blank, waiting for a, a thought to pop in, seeing a strange concurrence of events. All of these, Walkie says, are common even among Christians and are ultimately just silliness. Now, I'm not suggest, suggesting that Christians today are involved in the ancient divination practices which ensnared Israel and God called abominations. I believe that they are sincere in seeking a word from the Lord. They're sincere in speaking, seeking special guidance because they have been led to believe those things probably by other well-meaning Christians. But my contention is this, that we need to, to be fully biblical and stop looking for God to communicate outside of Scripture, which amounts to some form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is seeking hidden knowledge that can be gained from means other than what God has given to us in the word that he has spoken. Our God speaks. Our God has spoken. The New Testament. The New Testament gives us the blueprint for Christian living. Right? I think we'd all agree with that. It gives us the blueprint for knowledge about God. Knowledge of what God has done. What knowledge of what God is doing. Knowledge of what God will do. Knowledge of what, what God tells us to do in order that we can live a life that is pleasing to Him. It gives no explicit command to find God's will. 
nor will you find any particular instructions in the New Testament on how to go about finding it. And I think the, the absence of that information, brothers and sisters, is telling. It's very telling. It's, it's not a qualification to know these deeper things or techniques if you're going to be a pastor teacher, if you're going to be an elder or a deacon in the church. 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul told Timothy, If I am delayed, I write to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. So I take that, that verse and, and I think about it, and apparently Timothy can, could conduct himself well in the church and outside the church with the teaching that had been committed to him, with the deposit of the truth that had been committed to him in the Holy Scriptures. He lacked nothing for a life of faith and godliness, just as exactly what Peter said. Which means that the Christian has all that he or she needs in the book that God has given to us to discern, note his wills. W-I-L-L-S. Plural. And we'll talk about that. And that's great. That's liberating. Young people, that's liberating. Because you are freed from the burden of trying to find God's perfect will for your life and the frustration that comes when you're unable to do it. And you can't know it. Or worse, making a decision based on what you thought God was telling you when he was not telling you to do it. You know, many Christians make small, medium, and, and big decisions that way. Very subjective decisions. I hope to show you a better way as we go through this. Now, there have been many times in my ministry that some people have said, Pastor Tom said, when I really didn't. Or when I really didn't say it in the way that they were conveying it. No one wants to be misrepresented. I will usually correct them and say, well, wait a minute, hold on. No, I didn't say that. Or I didn't say it exactly that way. There was a context to it. So we need to be very careful about misrepresenting God. And saying that God has spoken when in fact he has not. Now, seeking spiritual guidance or revelation outside of Scripture is nothing new. It's nothing new. You could read in the, the Apostolic Fathers the battles they faced over this. Polycarp, who knew the, who John. And Charles Spurgeon, in, in excerpts from the sermon, Our Lord's Prayer for His People's Sanctification, writing on March 7th, 1886, he wrote, is the truth that which I imagine to be revealed to me by some private communication? Am I to fancy that I enjoy some special revelation? And am I to order my life by voices, dreams, and impressions? Brethren, fall not into this common delusion. God's word to us is in the Holy Scripture. 
All the truth that sanctifies men is in God's word. Do not listen to those who cry, Lo here and lo there. The faith has been delivered once for all to the saints, and it stands fast forever. Thy word is truth. As Jesus said, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. The scripture alone is absolute truth, essential truth, decisive truth, authoritative truth, undiluted truth, eternal truth, everlasting truth. Truth given us in the word of God is that which is to sanctify all believers to the end of time. God has promised that he will use it to that end. Amen. We lack nothing. Sola Scriptura, the Scripture alone. In Acts chapter 17, verse 16 says, Now while Paul waited for them, his missionary party at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the whole city given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. Acts 17, verse 18, Then certain Epicureans and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. I mean, I think they were the ones, you know, who were promoting the foreign gods, pagan gods. Because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection, and they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you are speaking, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. But then there's the commentary on this. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing, some new thing. An old friend of mine, an apologist, pastor, Richard Fisher, once says, said that this phrase, to tell or to hear some new thing, is the definition of a Christian bookstore. How we would say a Christian catalog or a Christian website. People love to hear some new thing. But seeking extra biblical guidance is nothing new, as Spurgeon pointed it out. But it is new and attractive to young believers who lack discernment. So they readily accept it, especially if it's coming from someone that they trust. It's very appealing. It is very appealing. Let me give you a couple of reasons why it's appealing. Number one, who does not want to know God's will for their life? Right? I mean, that would make life a whole lot simpler, right? I mean, some of you young people, you're thinking, boy, you know, I don't know about this. I don't, I don't know where to go to school. I, I don't know what God has for me. I mean, who, who doesn't want direct guidance like that? It's very appealing. Secondly, who does not want a closer, more intimate, conversational relationship with God? Right? Thirdly, who does not want personal guidance or encouragement from the Lord? A word just given to you. Now I want, now I want to turn to the question. 
which is really the title of my message. Has God spoken to mankind? The answer is yes, he has spoken. We all agree on that, right? Because the scriptures confirm it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. The first time the, that God spoke was in creation. Ten times in Genesis chapter 1, we read of God speaking. Verse 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, 26, 28, and 29. Our God speaks. Psalm 33, 6, we read, By the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all of the, all of the host of them by the breath of his mouth. The Bible says he spoke, and it was done. Right? Let there be stars. And there were billions and trillions of stars instantaneously. Amen. God spoke to Adam, to Eve in Genesis 1 through, in chapters 1, 1 through 3. In chapter 2, we have the actual sequence of the creation of Adam and Eve on the sixth day. We know that Adam was created first. So when you get to Genesis chapter 2, Verse 4 through 25, it's not contradicting Genesis 1. It's just a more detailed description of what happened on the sixth day when God created Adam and Eve. And here we find God speaking to Adam, who was created first. It says in Genesis 2.15, Then the Lord took the man who was created first and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God spoke. He commanded the man saying, of the tree of the knowledge of the garden, of every tree you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will not eat, for in the day that you eat it, dying you will surely die, is what the Hebrew reads. You will certainly die. The process of death will begin at the moment you disobey my word. The words of God to Adam and, and to Eve were very clear, right? They were easy to be understood. There was nothing vague about them. There was nothing mystical about them. Adam did not have to try to figure them out. They were actual, audible words. They weren't impressions. They weren't inner feelings. Genesis 1 records God's communication to the first couple on that sixth day. Genesis 1.18, God blessed them and God spoke. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Once again, very clear. Very detailed, but very clear. Adam and Eve didn't even need an explanation. They have many, many examples of God speaking in Scripture. God spoke to Cain in Genesis 4, verses 4 through 15. He says in verse 6 of Genesis 4, Why are you angry? And then, why is your countenance fallen? And then in verse 9, where is your brother Abel? 
Very, ser very simple, clear questions. And I think this whole thing is interesting because God's first spoke in the context of creation and giving life. He next spoke to man in the context of murder. And it didn't take long for man to go astray. Horribly astray. God spoke to Noah, right? Build an ark. What? What's an ark? Build an ark. Fill the ark with all kinds of animals. Get on board because I'm going to bring a rain deluge down upon you. Well, what's a deluge? You know? What's a flood? God, Genesis 22, thus Noah did. And of course, God gave him some help with the building of the ark, right? According to all that God commanded him to do, so did he. Talk about going out on a limb, trusting God, right? Wow. Build an ark. It's going to take you a little while. Just do it. God spoke to Abraham, Genesis 12. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and from your family's house to the land that I will show you. Oh, that came out out of nowhere. No, no, Abraham wasn't seeking anything from God. He was, he was a pagan living in Ur of the Chaldees. And God says, leave this place. And when he stepped out and he looked north, south, east, or west, all he saw was nothing but desert. That's not very attractive. But Abraham's call was very special. Because God was calling him out of a wicked culture to be the channel of salvation by faith to everyone. Noah, very special place in redemptive history. Abraham, very special place in redemptive history. He is, according to Romans 4.16, the father of all who believe. God spoke to Moses many times, actually. Exodus 3.4, when the Lord saw that he, Moses, turned aside to look at the burning bush, he saw this bush that was burning and was not consumed. Perhaps, I don't know. Maybe God prophetically letting him know that, you know, this, this, would, be, this would be Israel. It would be a bush that's burned and burned, and, but never consumed. God called to him from the midst of the bush. And he said, Moses, Moses. And he, Moses, said, here I am. Here I am. Wow. This was a supernatural encounter. And as I said, God spoke regularly to Moses. With other notable men, not so much. Not so much. God spoke to Isaiah. Isaiah 6, verse 1 says, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. 
And then in verse 8, Isaiah 6, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? To which he replied, Here I am. Send me. This is a very dramatic and supernatural encounter. The same that happened with Moses. Another would be God speaking with Elijah, the miracle worker. I think we'd all agree he was a very special prophet of God, right? There are no Elijahs today. There are no prophets like this today. One pastor said, Elijah called fire down from heaven. I can't even light my barbecue grill half the time. God spoke to David and to many other prophets. And I know with clarity, with specifics. All of these examples I cited were given to men whom God selected for the special part that they would play in his plan for the nation of Israel and then for the gospel to go to all the world, to all the Gentiles. Amos 3.7, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. Who does God give secret, special revelation to? His servants. Men like Noah, men like Abraham. His prophets like Elijah, Moses, Elijah. Now, I have to tell you, I am not in that group. You probably figured that out by now, right? And neither is anyone here in that group. God has not revealed his plans to me or for me by way of a sign, by way of a still small voice, inner peace through circumstances or other such means. And I have to tell you, honestly, I do not feel left out. You know why? I have more than the Old Testament prophets had. I have more revelation than the Old Testament prophets have. I have the completed canon of Scripture. And when this book was declared completed, the word canon, canonized, it, canon was a word that meant rule, uh, a, a, it was a reed that was used to measure for measurement. In other words, we, we have everything. It's finished. The canon is complete. No further revelation. The Apostle Paul received direct words from the Lord on the road to Damascus, laying out his ministry. Pretty dramatic, right? He was blinded. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament under inspiration from God. He was caught up in the third heaven and didn't dare to speak to anybody about it. He was taught on the backside of a desert for three years. Heard from God throughout his ministry. Performed mighty miracles. But I have more of the Bible available to me than he had. We are so blessed. Now, I also have to point out to you that these examples that I listed of God speaking to men were to very special men for very special reasons over long periods of time. They were not the norm, nor did God ever speak to ordinary Israelites in their everyday life 
for personal decision making. Not once. Not once. There is no record of that. So the masses of people live their entire lives without a single word from the Lord. 1 Samuel 3, 1 says, Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was what? Was rare. Today you would think it's everywhere. It's common. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. But now I said, you have people everywhere seeing God, hearing from God, seeing visions and dreams. It's, 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 it's so common now that it, it's, there's no really supernatural aspect to it anymore. It's commonplace. And I think that's because people by nature, by human nature, are very impressionable. You know that, right? You, you know that. I know that. Man, I can go up to the Del Mar Fair and be impressed by some guy doing some demonstration of a blender or something. A juicer. I want to buy one. These examples of Old Testament men who received words from God, interpreted dreams, saw visions, were not a model. They were not the norm of how God communicated to men back then and certainly were not given for believers for all time. And I have to emphasize this again. They were very rare events. As a matter of fact, there were only very few miracle working periods in the history of the Old Testament. Very few miracle workers, really. Over thousands of years of time. We come away with the impression today that God is doing miracles every day. Certainly not of that kind, right? Peter walked on water, right? Don't try that at home. Well, maybe don't try that at the lake. Now, I just want to emphasize this. Because this is all the, all the, the time I have today. But we're going to get into details about visions about signs, supernatural things, putting the fleece out. You know what that means, right? Do you know what putting the fleece out means? It means you want a sign from God. So, so you ask for God to, like Gideon did, and we'll get into those contexts. We'll, 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 put, we'll say, God, if you want me to do this, uh, give me a sign. That's putting the fleece out. Man, I'm really thinking about going to Alaska. God, if you really want me to do this, let me see a, a car with a, a plate, an Alaskan plate on it today. Or something of that sort, right? I mean, look, if you're going to look for a sign, if you're going to put a fleece out, pick a good one. God, if you want me to move to Alaska, let it snow six inches tomorrow in San Diego. I think you'd be packing your bags to Alaska if it did, right? See, we, we put these vague things out, these things that are not really supernatural. See, that's, the, that's the, my sheep hear my voice. I can tell you a number of books that have been written about that on how to hear from God because God's sheep hear God's voice. John 10. Total violation of the context. Completely ignored. 
God speaks in a still, small voice. Complete, complete ignorance of the context of that scripture and how God intended it to be used. See, these are the things we ought, we ought not to do. So we'll, we'll get into some of those things and Muslim dreams. And you've probably heard that. Muslims are seeing Jesus, speaking with Jesus. Doesn't appear to be the Muslims in this world, only certain parts of the world, right? We'll, we'll, we'll get into that too. God is not incapable of speaking clearly to us today if he chose to do so. God could do anything he wants to do except fail. You know, the practical definition of the sovereignty of God is God can do anything he wants to do, anytime he wants to do it, anywhere he wants to do it, for whatever purpose he wants to achieve. And no one can stay his hand. He is not incapable of speaking right here, right now, to all of us if he chose to do so. So I, I leave you with this. Jim Osmer, who wrote the book, God Does Not Whisper. You don't have to listen for a whisper. He says, if God is not speaking to you, you are not going to hear him. If God is speaking, you are not going to miss him. That's, that's true. So I put it this way. If God is not trying to communicate with you, you will not hear him no matter how hard you try. No matter how many techniques you employ, no matter, no matter how many books you buy on how to hear from God, if God is not speaking to you, you will not hear him. And if God is trying to communicate to you some type of, through some type of a revelation, you will not fail to get the message. You will not fail to hear what he's saying. You would know exactly what he is saying or revealing. You wouldn't have to buy a book. You wouldn't have to go to a workshop or a seminar or hear a message or experience God on a deeper level. None of that would be necessary. So where does this leave us? Well, we'll see as we go along. We have a book. We are the people of a book. We call it the Bible, the word of God. And listen, young people, I don't want to leave you frustrated. Everything you need to know about the decisions that you must make in your life is in this book. The guidance that you need to know to make good decisions is found in the word of God. And, and you don't have to go trying to, to aim your arrow at, at the perfect will of God in the center of the target and, and, and being afraid you might miss it. Because that would be terrible, right? I mean, if God had a perfect wife, his, if God's perfect will for you was to marry Jane and you married Sarah, what's your life going to be like? Right? And how many other lives would that impact if you missed the will of God on a big decision? See, we don't think about those things. But they have tremendous practical ramifications. 
So let's don't get caught up in that, all right? Let's just be content, more than content. Be joyful, rejoice, be glad for what God has given to us. I, I think he's given plenty, right? I mean, 66 books is a lot of information, right? I mean, it's a lot. You spend your lifetime and you still don't know them all. You can't even say them in order. Right? But it's here. Look, I remember a couple of Mormons came to my door one time and was sharing with them. And and, the, and they, they saw the book. The, I said, well, how do you know the, how do you know the, the, the Book of Mormon is true, you know, beside the people in Salt Lake telling you it is. So how do you know it's true? Oh, well, we, we prayed over it and we had a burning in the bosom. I said, you're really, you're really going with that? You prayed that the Book of Mormon was God's word and, and you, you got had heartburn? I mean, maybe it was from the burrito you ate last night. I mean, these subjective things like that, you know, I think we just... Stay with what we do have.